in Riverside. Um, so, as most of y'all probably know, I love Marvel movies. I'm not going to use another Marvel example. Some of y'all are sad, some of y'all are happy. But one of the things you may not know about me is there's another hobby that I really love that I don't think I've actually told many people, um, is that I am a big fan of Euro games. Is anybody familiar with Euro games? Nobody. Okay. Well, I'll explain. Okay, one person. <laughs> I'll explain what Euro games are. Euro games are a kind of European board game, which gets the idea because they're mostly from Germany or other areas around there. And they're not like your typical kind of Monopoly or other games along those lines. They have a lot less to do with chance and more kind of with economics. So they're not always like risk where you're fighting people or you're having conflict. It's more about building something. So one of my favorite games is Agricola, which, like it sounds, it's about agriculture, which really doesn't sound really fun until you actually play the game. It's really an enjoyable, fun game. But probably one of the most popular Euro games that you may be familiar with is Catan. Is anybody familiar with Settlers of Catan? There we go, okay. So that is what's considered a Euro game. And in fact, Catan is one of the kind of Euro games that brought Euro games over to the United States. Um, it's kind of the beginning game that a lot of people get familiar with and then you go into other board games. Um, and if you're not familiar with, with Catan, the basic idea of Catan is you're trying to build a settlement on this island that's called Catan. And so you're trying to build the best settlement, build the most cities, and get to a certain amount of points. And the way you do it is by trading in these different resources. And there's five different resources. There is wood, brick, wheat, stone, and sheep. And so you're trying to trade all these different resources to build the right settlements, the cities, and progress until somebody finally wins. And for those of y'all who've played Catan, I'm curious, do you know which of those resources most people tend to have a lot of and not actually really like? Sheep. So, and generally, in the, game, the way the game goes is early on, sheep are kind of useful, but later on in the game, sheep aren't really helpful. And so everyone at the end of the game has a ton of sheep. And you're trading with people and you're trying to get rid of as many of your sheep as possible to the point where you start trading like three or four sheep for one stone or one wheat. Because you just have so many sheep and in real honesty, they're just not really that valuable in Catan. And so as I think about this, I wonder what it would be like for a shepherd to be playing Settlers of Catan. And everyone just trading these sheep like commodity, just passing them around, not really caring about them, trading four sheep for one thing of wheat or four sheep for one thing of rock and how they must feel. Um, and this morning we're gonna talk about shepherds um, and we're talking about what is a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And one of the things we're gonna see is that bad shepherds are people who use, shepherd, or use sheep almost like commodities. They're something that they're willing to trade around or pass around or get rid of for their own sake rather than actually caring about the sheep. And so I imagine if a, if a shepherd were to actually pay, play the, the settlers of Catan, he might have a different approach to how he feels about his sheep. And we're gonna see that as we talk specifically about what it means to be a good shepherd. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 10. We're continuing our series on signs of life, um, the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And here's what I wanna do in this passage. Um, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the beginning. What is a bad shepherd? What do bad shepherds look like? Um, and I don't want to stay there too long, but then I want to go and look at what does the good shepherd look like? And kind of by extension, like Paul said, 
what does it mean to be a good shepherd or a good under-shepherd? And then in that process, kind of identify some of the things that make Jesus the good shepherd and therefore those who follow Jesus as under-shepherds, how can we identify those who are good shepherds? So we're gonna start by quickly going through kind of the bad shepherds starting in chapter 10, verse one. And the first of the bad shepherds is actually a group. It's thieves and robbers. So starting in verse one. Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking. I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus starts off by talking about this illustration, this metaphor of shepherds, which they would have been very familiar with in an agricultural society. For us, we're not as familiar, unless we're trading sheep in Settlers of Catan, we're not really familiar with what's going on with sheep. Um, I'm assuming nobody in here is a shepherd or has more information. Um, But um, initially, Jesus talks about these sort of two bad shepherds, and I'm not sure if it's fair to call them shepherds, honestly, they're, they're breaking in, but they're the, the thief and the robber. And in English, thief and robber kind of have the same kind of connotation, often we see them as synonyms. In Greek, they're actually a little different. Um, the, the Greek word for thief is the word kleptos, which, if you're familiar, sounds like kleptomaniac, somebody who steals something. Um, but the, the word for, um, for robber is actually the word lestis, which probably better could be translated as an insurrectionist. So there's a couple of times both of these words are actually used in John. Later in chapter 12, Judas is called a thief because he doesn't care about the poor and he takes some money from his pocketbook. But Barabbas is called a robber at the end in John chapter 18. But he's more likely an insurrectionist, not just a robber. But so these are the two people that are kind of mentioned as the first bad shepherds. And the key for these two people, I think, is this. These are two people that care more about what they can get from sheep than actually caring about the sheep themselves. They're just like somebody in Catan who's trading sheep for whatever they can get. They break into the sheepfold to get something. They want the sheep to give them more life, and they're willing to take the life of a sheep in order to get that. But as we read this passage, I think we're not super familiar with sheep, right? Um, I know I haven't had a whole bunch of experience with sheep, honestly, Um, but I got a little bit more experience when I went to Scotland. And so um, I'm not sure if you can really see it, but here's a photo of a sheep right here. It's a little darker. Uh, But this actually is, ironically, on a hill in Scotland where I proposed to Katie. And every once in a while, these sheep would just come up from the pastures you can kind of see down below. And they would just wander up and start being grazing around and And the sheep are not super smart, honestly. They kind of just wander wherever. Oftentimes when you're hiking around, they get in your way and they won't move. And there's a couple times my wife and I had to yell at the sheep or kind of shoo them to get through. And so we would go hiking in this one place called the Pentlands. And while you're in the Pentlands, you can see all these sheep that just climb up. Like that's literally how, what that incline looks like. I took my wife up that incline later and she wasn't super happy about it because I 
I didn't tell her how steep it was or how far it was up. But the sheep just kind of climb up and they're just everywhere. In fact, in the Scottish borders, which is where we were in the southern side of Scotland, um, that's where most of the sheep in Scotland are. And I think in Scotland there are more sheep than there are people. Um, So you just see sheep literally everywhere and they just wander all around. Um, And in fact, one thing that's really fascinating is, I'm not sure if you can see in this photo, but there's so many sheep that just kind of wander around that sometimes you wonder, how in the world do they know whose sheep is which sheep? And you can't really see, unfortunately this photo, I I need to blow it up a little bit more, but this sheep right here, you can just barely see, he actually has a blue dot on him. On a multitude of sheep, you'll see this, you'll see they'll spray paint the sheep, and that's a way for them to distinguish because a lot of sheep will just kind of wander around in this giant area of the Pentlands, and when it comes time to figure out whose sheep is who, it's kind of hard to tell which one is which, and so they'll spray paint them. Um, And so it was really fascinating for me to learn this. You drive down the M9 and you'll just see sheep painted, some painted purple, some yellow, I mean, just all sorts of different colors, and that's how you tell the difference for them. But in the first century, obviously, they don't have spray paint. So how in the world are they gonna tell their different sheep apart from themselves? They do something very similar. You know, they have the sheep that wander out into the pasture and they'll let them go and have them, you know, eat from and graze from their various places. But there's a time when they need to figure out which sheep are which. And what Jesus is saying here is the way that they figure that out is they know the sheep's, or they know the shepherd's voice. In general, sheep are not really smart animals, but they can figure out what the voice of their shepherd sounds like. And in fact, I think this is still used in some ways in in the Middle East and Palestine today. Um, I saw a video that I wanted to share, but because of live streaming, we can't fully share all these things unless we have the copyright. There's a video of a guy who was walking in front of his sheep and he was calling out um, and sort of a call, I'm not gonna try to do it, but his sheep would follow because of that little cry, that little call that he would do. And I've heard stories of they would go into these sheep folds and somebody could literally just speak the name of some of the sheep or give their specific call and all of their sheep would hear, perk their heads up and actually come out. Or sometimes they would use a little reed flute. Um, And there's a story of someone who did that. A little boy played this song on the reed flute and the sheep recognized it and come out and follow him. And so this is kind of what is going on. But the difference between the shepherd and these bad sheep is Notice in verse five, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so Jesus starts to tell us about this, these sheep and tells us this figure of speech about what bad shepherds look like. And he keeps going to talk a little bit more about them in verse seven. He says, so Jesus again said to them, because they didn't seem to understand his first little uh, figure of speech, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So this is where we see the difference between these bad shepherds and the good shepherds. The thief wants to steal and kill and destroy, wants to use these sheep as commodity to get something that they want. But the shepherd comes that the sheep may actually have life and have it abundantly. And so for the shepherd, that's a couple of things. One, that's protecting them from robbers, and later we're gonna see protecting them from 
wolves or animals that may attack them, but it's also leading them to places where they can actually eat good pasture land. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit. But the other thing that comes up here is Jesus says in verse seven that he is the door of the sheep. Um, And sometimes that's confusing for us to to understand. Again, we're not shepherds, so we don't understand all this. So I had to do a lot of research on what goes on into being a shepherd and taking care of sheep. And one of the things I found out was the idea of a sheepfold. Um, So we have some, uh, um, actually some, some drawings that this was on a stone in the Jordan of what a sheepfold might look like. Um, I'm thankful that uh, some, of the old, some of the people way back when still just drew stick figures. It gives me hope that maybe somebody's gonna see one of my drawings and think that this is some work of art. Maybe, I don't know if that's what happened here. But this is a sheepfold and, and what they normally would do was they would find a kind of cave that was already enclosed and then they would build a low wall around the outside and they would put like brambly stuff on top of it. And then they would herd all their sheep into the sheepfold, usually in the evening to protect them and protect them specifically from robbers, but also from any wild animals, wolves, or um, anything that may come and attack them. And then the, sheep, and then the shepherd would kind of stay at the very front, at the gate of the sheepfold. So this is what they would do in, in the Middle East. In Scotland, here's an actual sheepfold, um, which obviously is not in a cave, but you can kind of see right here is the opening. And so they would put you know, all these briars and and thistles all around the outside. And then oftentimes the shepherd would, you know, in some accounts that I read, would would lay down in that little opening. And so that would be the shepherd being the gate. Uh, Other times, if they didn't do that, they would put a bunch of thorn brushes and stuff in there to kind of guard it and keep the sheep in over the night. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. I think when he says, I am the door of the sheep. He's continuing to talk about how he is the person who is going to be protecting them from robbers, from bad shepherds, people who are coming to steal and take, but also from animals that might come and take them out. And so there's some other bad shepherds that I wanna talk about in a little bit, but as I think about this, these are obviously like the, the worst of the bad shepherds, right? And if I'm really honest and process through and think through this, um, we have to be honest to admit that there are some bad shepherds in the church, right? As I was preparing for this, man, there's so many examples that I could have brought up um, of shepherds that have taken advantage of the sheep, of pastors, of Christian leaders, not just secular leaders, Christian leaders. I'm sure you can think of and imagine some of the people that have been in the news recently. Um, And there's a long history of this all throughout the history of the church of those who have taken advantage of the sheep, who have abused them, who have not loved them or taken care of them, but actually used them as commodity for themselves. And Jesus is gonna be calling these people out really sternly um, because he loves and cares for the sheep. And these are bad shepherds that we wanna stay away from. But he goes on to talk about some other bad shepherds that maybe we might be a little more familiar with. Um, the bad shepherds are the hired hands in verses 11 and four, through 14. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So the, the robbers and the wolves, or robbers, well, and the wolves as well, the robbers and the, and the thieves, 
They're people that are gonna use the sheep, willing to take the life of the sheep for their own advantage. Thankfully, the hired hands don't do that. They're paid to take care of the sheep. But the hired hands don't care so much about the life of the sheep that they're willing to risk their own lives. So as soon as a wolf or any other predator comes to try to attack them, they're gonna run away and leave them. And it's interesting that Jesus is talking about this within this context, and this is where I wanna keep going back and back to the context and help you understand what's going on because this is happening during a specific time in the history of Israel and during a specific time of the year. So, so jump down really quickly to verse 22. In verse 22 of chapter 10, it says, or John writes, at this time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, that's not a throwaway line. That's not something that just kind of gives us some context to what's going on. John is trying to help us understand what is happening in the midst of when Jesus shares this parable, shares this illustration about bad shepherds and good shepherds. And what's been in the context, as we've talked about, from chapter seven to chapter 10, is there's all these festivals going on. So all of the Jews are in Jerusalem and they're celebrating these festivals. And in the midst of all of these festivals, there's questions and things that are coming up. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, when they're having a celebration of the light, the ceremony of lights. Jesus is saying, I am the one who brings water, when they're having this festival of pouring water. And there's all these other things that are going on that Jesus is speaking to that are on the mind of people who are in Jerusalem. And so this, this, um, this, uh, celebration, this feast of dedication is what we would know today as Hanukkah. Uh, and Hanukkah is this f- celebration of the cleansing of the temple. And so if you know any of your history, you may be a little bit familiar with the Maccabean revolt. So what happened was over time, because Alexander the Great started Hellenizing much of the known world, um, over time the Jews became less and less distinct as Jews and started adopting kind of Hellenistic culture. And at one point in the second century, there was this king, uh, Antiochus, who comes, and he comes into the temple of Jerusalem, and he starts sacrificing pigs on the altar. Um, And if you know anything about Judaism, that is a no-no. That's something you are not supposed to do. And then he starts uh, banning circumcision and banning the Sabbath, which are essential key things for Jews. And so over time, essentially a lot of the Jewish leaders just sort of start becoming Hellenized and they start adopting this. And in the midst of this, in 167 to 164, some people say to 160, there's this revolt that's talked about in the book of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. And Matthias, who's this priest, finally decides he's not gonna have these sacrifices going on in the temple that are an abomination to what Judaism talks about. So he decides with his five sons to lead this revolt, which becomes known as the Maccabean Revolt. And it's kind of the old, there's other revolts, Bar Kokhba and some other people tried to revolt during this time, but, but the Maccabean Revolt is one of the successful revolts. They actually end up cleaning the temple. And so when they celebrate this, they're celebrating in Hanukkah this eight days of cleansing of the temple where they're bringing the temple back to what it's supposed to be doing, right? and they're getting rid of these pigs and these sacrifices, um, and they're bringing it back to the proper sacrifice that the Jews are looking for. And in the midst of this, they're having this conversation. Every year they're having this conversation about why in the world do we have bad leaders? 
bad shepherds that are creeping up that allowed us to become Hellenized to the point where we had a pig sacrificed in the midst of our temple, in the Holy of Holies, the place of, of all places where this shouldn't have happened. So this is in the background of what's happening in this context. The, the Jewish people are talking about and remembering just a couple 150 years earlier how the leaders have become bad shepherds. And even more in the background of this is another passage. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to, John, or to Ezekiel 34. Because um, this is also in the background of what's going on. Ezekiel 34, um, honestly, we could look at the whole passage, but I just want to point out a couple verses specifically. Ezekiel chapter 34 is where God calls out the shepherds for being bad shepherds in Israel. Um, And so Ezekiel 34, verse 1, Ezekiel writes that the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Um, So in in the Old Testament and in this time, shepherds were a common way of talking about leaders. A king was often seen as a shepherd. And so so, um, God, through Ezekiel, is calling out the leaders of Israel because they're acting maybe a little bit like thieves and robbers, but maybe they're acting even just like hired hands. They're kind of taking care of the sheep, but they're actually feeding themselves rather than feeding the sheep, which is the call of a pastor, the call of a shepherd. And so he keeps on and goes and says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. And my sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep are scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And so this is in the background of what they're thinking about as they're processing through what does it look like for a bad shepherd. And one of the things the bad shepherd does is doesn't feed the sheep, but he also doesn't protect him from the wild animals. And part of the danger of what happens with the wild animals is they cause the sheep to scatter. Look at verse 13, or actually verse 12 in chapter 10 of John. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So we tend to think that the the most dangerous thing that happens with the wolf is that he's going to eat some of the animals, um, some of the sheep. But this passage actually suggests that One of the other dangers, and you saw that same danger in Ezekiel 34, is that they will be scattered. And this is because, again, we don't know the terrain. We don't know what's going on in the context. We tend to think of, when I think of sheep, I think of them in in Scotland, which Scotland's obviously a very beautiful, lush place where they can just go wander around and eat food anywhere. But in Israel, that's not actually the case. So here's a photo of what kind of pasture land would look like in Israel, and you can see it's not just a lush green area. In fact, most of the area um, south and and, and in the Negev um, would look something along those lines. And so what they need is a shepherd. The sheep need a shepherd who's able to find places where there's water and find places where there's food for them to graze on. And so this is where it becomes important. This is actually a photo of Jordan. You can see the shepherd right at the very front who is leading his people through all this barren land. He's leading his sheep to a place that has food. 
And so it's dangerous in a place like this if the sheep gets you know, scattered from the shepherd because that means they have no way of finding food. So there's the danger of not only the, the, the wolf coming and taking them out, but the more danger is for all of these sheep to scatter and then have no way to find their shepherd and no way to find food again as they wander around in this. And so this is what Jesus is talking about specifically here. And that's what Ezekiel is talking about. There's a danger of them being scattered. Now, a, a lot of people will, will ask and wonder, well, does Jesus have any specific kind of shepherds in mind? And some people will say that there's you know, messianic pretenders, people who pretended to be the Messiah that Jesus has in mind who are these bad shepherds or these hired hands. I think actually in the context, the bad shepherds that Jesus is talking about are a little closer And this is again where we find this danger of us reading texts kind of isolated. Because in John chapter 10, we just see, okay, this is a whole chapter and we're just gonna read John chapter 10, but we don't see any of the connection to John chapter nine. And if you read this within the context, I think what you'll see is that Jesus is suggesting that John nine has just talked about some bad shepherds and just been an example of this. And you see this connection if you look at verse 19 of chapter 10. John connects these stories. In verse 19, it says, there was again a division among the Jews because of the words that Jesus had said. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? We'll come back to why they say that. In verse 21, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that's John's way of pointing you back to John chapter nine. Because John chapter nine is a story about a lost sheep. And it's a story about the good shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep, but also bad shepherds who kick the sheep out of the flock. We don't have time to go all the way through this, but if you remember, in the first couple of verses, Jesus heals this blind man. And then the Pharisees come on the scene, and in verses eight through almost verse 35, the Pharisees first go to the blind man's neighbors, and then they go to the blind man's parents, and then they go to the blind man. And the whole time, all you see is that they do not actually care about this lost sheep. They care more about themselves and what they can get from this lost sheep, or showing that he's a sinner, or that Jesus is a sinner. And the thing that the parents are afraid of, if you look at John chapter nine, verse 22, is that they'll get kicked out of the synagogue. Notice it says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews has already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. He was to be kicked out of the flock. And to be kicked out of the flock in the desert means you don't have a shepherd, which means you are going to die on your own. And then notice what the Pharisees do to the blind man. Look down at verse 34. At the end of this conversation, they say, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They're doing the exact same thing that Ezekiel 34 is talking that bad shepherds do. And notice what the good shepherd does in verse 35 of John chapter nine. Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the flock. And having found him, he says to him, do you believe in the son of man? So this is a parable of a good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and goes and finds this one lost sheep. And it's really important that happens because in the desert without a shepherd, a sheep is going to die. So Jesus is saying, these are the bad shepherds that are happening. 
right before, the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time should have been the hired hands, the ones that should have cared about the flock. And yet they're the very ones who are letting lost sheep run away, letting them be scattered, not caring about them, not willing to sacrifice themselves. They're in fact the ones who are going to sacrifice Jesus to save themselves. And so Jesus is pointing out all of these bad shepherds. So what I want to do in the remaining time is look at what the good shepherd looks like. That's what I'm talking about, the bad shepherds in John chapter nine. What does a good shepherd look like? And we see this specifically in verses 14 through 21. But I want to go back through and, and look at sort of the good shepherd all throughout this entire passage because you're going to see this contrasted with the bad shepherds. But look in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He said that already in verse 11. I know my own and my own know me. This is one of the marks of a good shepherd. He knows his sheep and cares for his sheep. And what you notice Jesus is doing is he's saying one of his I am statements. In fact, in this passage, there's two of those I am statements that Jesus has been using. He is the gate for the sheep in verse seven, and then he is the good shepherd in verse 11 and 14. That's said twice. So Jesus is gonna show us what a good shepherd looks like. And one of the keys of the good shepherd is he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. Verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. And there was again a division among the Jews because of his words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Now why in the world do they think that because of Jesus talking about this, that he has a demon is insane? And again, this is where we need to know and understand the context because Ezekiel 34 goes on to talk about who the really good shepherd is. In Ezekiel 34, verses 15 through 16, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And verse 28 says, there shall be no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And in verse 30, God says, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So in this context where they're talking about bad shepherds and they're aware that the leaders of Israel have been bad shepherds, they're also aware that God himself many times says, I am the shepherd. I mean, we're all familiar with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David himself, a shepherd, calls God his shepherd. And this is a very common idea. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd multiple times, and he talks specifically about how he relates to his father, this is blasphemy for them. And we don't have time to get into it, but in the rest of chapter 10, they're going to eventually pick up stones to stone Jesus because he's going to make this much more clear that he is claiming to be God. 
when he says that he is the good shepherd. Now, the good shepherd is actually this beautiful image of God as a God who cares and loves for a bunch of sheep that are dumb, that can't survive on their own, that are defenseless, as Paul said. But it's also this beautiful early image in the early church. So in the early church, we know that um, they were persecuted a lot. And it wasn't until about the third century that uh, in 313 with Constantine that they were able to worship openly. So most often they worshiped in the catacombs. And one of the reasons we know that this image of the good shepherd is really important is because they actually couldn't paint any images of Jesus because that would you know, essentially get them killed. But in the catacombs, the most common image we have that's painted where Christians used to worship is the image of the good shepherd. So I, I wanna show you here in a catacomb painting in the third century, you can see this picture of a shepherd with a sheep around his neck. And they could paint that because that was a kind of common image, but that was a way for them to recognize this is the good shepherd who we follow and serve. Here's another one in another catacomb, and you can see they got a sheep around there, but they also have some sheep in the flock below them. And then this is actually probably the oldest painting that we are aware of with a, uh, a good shepherd uh, painting, and you can see just barely the sheep around there and then the sheep in the flock. And this became this common image, this picture of what the good shepherd looked like. Um, and this is a way of them recognizing who Jesus was uh, before they could actually openly worship Jesus. And so this became a very familiar image um, all throughout the history. So what I wanna do right now is I wanna just walk through what makes a good shepherd. And I wanna do that for two reasons. One, to point out the beauty of Jesus as our ultimate good shepherd. But secondly, what I wanna do is I wanna try to help you identify what are good shepherds. The, The Latin word pastor literally comes from, you can probably tell, pasture. A pastor is a shepherd, someone who feeds people sheep specifically in the pasture. And so as we talk about bad shepherds and good shepherds, we're talking about pastors in some way. Um, And the way we tend to refer to ourselves is under shepherds. We are not the good shepherd. Um, And thank the Lord that we are not the good shepherd because we would be bad shepherds um, in that way. But I want you to to process through and and try to help you identify based on what what Jesus the good shepherd looks like, what good under shepherds would look like. Uh, And so I wanna just walk through a a couple quick things um, because this is something that's important to me as a pastor, as a shepherd, and this is something that I'm I'm preaching and teaching to myself as well. I need to be reminded of this, of what a good shepherd looks like. Um, So I want you to look at three specific ways. And and the way I wanna do this is, um, it's easy to to point out that there's bad shepherds. And, And I could go down a list of all these different bad shepherds. I could name people who have used and abused people in the church. I could name people who have just been in the pasture for, for money, um, or I could name all of these bad shepherds, but probably the best way to be able to distinguish bad shepherds from good shepherds is to see the kind of true, best, original good shepherd, right? You're probably familiar with the idea of when you wanna know if it's a counterfeit bill, you don't study all the counterfeit bills, you study the actual original bill, and that's gonna help you understand more what's going on. Um, in fact, 
Um, not too long ago, somebody actually asked me um, about a C.S. Lewis quote. There was a, a C.S. Lewis quote that was going around in, um, in the social media, and someone from the church asked me and said, hey, I've seen this go around. Is this actually C.S. Lewis? It was attributed to the screw tape letters. Um, and, and they knew that I love C.S. Lewis. I've kind of read most everything of C.S. Lewis that he's written, sometimes multiple times. And so when they asked me, I was able to look at it and see really quickly that it was not from the screw tape letters. I've read the screw tape letters multiple times, and I know it's not from there. But more than that, I was able to know this is not the way that C.S. Lewis even writes, because I'm so familiar with the original that I can tell what a fake looks like. So that's what I want to do. I want to help us to see what the original looks like so we can actually be able to differentiate when there are bad shepherds. Um, so um, I just have three things to point out. Um, and the first is that um, originals, if you want to identify good shepherds, they know the voice of Jesus. And, and this is really key. They know the voice of Jesus. Look at verses three through five specifically. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now notice, sheep are not really smart animals, so they're not able to recognize all these different voices. It says here in the passage, they do not know the voice of strangers, but they don't need to. They only need to know the voice of the good shepherd or their shepherd specifically. And we can spend a lot of time trying to study all the bad shepherds or look at all the bad shepherds or try to understand the way bad shepherds talk, but I think the best way is to actually really know and care about the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd. This became kind of really clear to me this week when my wife, um, we were texting back and forth and we often text back and forth during the week and she had had a hard day on Wednesday. Um, and some of that was because the, the university that she teaches at, um, or not teaches, it works at, at Judson, um, on, on Tuesday night there had been an accident and there were two students who were killed and two students that were injured. And so this week it was just a heavy week at work. And so I was texting with her on Wednesday and she had been talking to um, one student who was going to stand up in the wedding of one of those students that died. And she was just saying, it was hard, it's tough. And so in response, I said, I'm sorry, honey, that's really tough. And about a minute later, she called me and asked, hey, Jason, I just wanted to make sure that was you actually texting me because I have never called her honey in my entire life. And she knew within a minute, as soon as I texted, I have never said that. That's something I have never said to her. And I don't know honestly why I texted honey. I just felt like that was the right thing to text at the moment. But she was absolutely right. She knew me so well, knew the way that I spoke, knew the way that I texted. And she knew to call me right away and make sure nobody had grabbed my phone and was texting her random stuff. And I think that's the picture of what's going on with the sheep. The way to know bad shepherds is to know the good shepherd so well that you know his voice. And I tell you this as a shepherd who part of my job is to speak and expound on scripture. And the truth is there's gonna be times that I'm not gonna expound this perfectly. And I say this for your help and for my own help as well to recognize I want you to know the voice of Jesus so well that you put everything that I say, everything that comes from this pulpit next to the words of Jesus. And there may be some times that you need to come to me and say, hey, 
that, don't, that doesn't seem to line up. Uh, there's things that I've preached in the past that I look back and I, I shudder to, to think that I've preached them. Um, so that's something that I think is really important for us to really recognize, and that happens by consistent daily conversation. My wife knows how I text because we text a lot back and forth. She knows how I talk because we talk a lot. And that has to be a part of your relationship with the Good Shepherd, is knowing him, interacting with him, spending time in his words so you know what he has to say. And a Good Shepherd is someone who will know the voice of Jesus and point to that voice. Second, a question to ask, I think, for identifying Good Shepherds is, are they leading sacrificially? Again, look at verses three through five. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. And again, that's not a throwaway, that's something that's really important. The shepherd is someone who leads, who goes out in front. And that means that he's somebody who's going to come across anything that might be dangerous. One of the things that's fascinating in Scotland is you walk around, there are sheep way up on all these hills where there's literally drops really, really far. And you wonder how in the world do they survive? How in the world do they make it up there? It seems crazy. But what you'll find is these little paths, these little trails that probably shepherds have walked to show them the way. In Psalm 23, I had someone who went to to Israel saying that, that the idea of paths of righteousness Those are paths that the shepherd has walked and shown these are safe for you to walk in. And so you can walk on a path of righteousness right alongside a place that might be dangerous because you're following the shepherd. And so good shepherds are shepherds who are gonna walk out in front of you and be willing to take any of the hits or the damage. Bad shepherds are those who send you ahead and have you take all the damage, right? I'm related to General George Armstrong Custer, and one of the things he was known for was riding out in front of his cavalry with them. And a good general is someone who rides out in front, not someone who just sends everyone else out ahead, lets them all get hurt, and then comes in later and takes the victory. It's someone who goes out in front. And so that's what I think shepherds are meant to do. So are they leading sacrificially? And then finally, and this is, again, I think a real key, do they point you to Jesus? Do your under-shepherds, do your pastors, do the people that you look up to and lead, do they point you to Jesus or do they point you to themselves? And look specifically at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Um, Most likely he's talking to the Jews and so he's meaning there's Gentiles. I have Gentiles who are part of this fold that I'm going to call it. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. That's why we call ourselves under-shepherds. We don't want to have a lot of churches where one shepherd is against another shepherd. We want good pastors, good shepherds, to be pointing people to Jesus as the good shepherd. Because the truth is, we're gonna fail you as pastors. I've probably failed some of you all already. I may have hurt some of you already. And if I haven't, I will in the future. <laughs> and I want to be someone who points you to the good shepherd. And I think this is one of the huge dangers of celebrity culture. We have churches that people go to the church because of the pastor. 
And sometimes that's really good and, and, and the pastor's really able to point to Jesus and I've been a part of a, a mega church where that's been the case. But more often than not, slowly it becomes more about the celebrity pastor, right? And it's not actually about Jesus, it's about sheep stealing or trading sheep and getting as many people to come to your ch- church as possible. Because you're not really pointing to Jesus because you're a bad shepherd that it's more about yourself. So often when somebody comes and visits Riverside, one of the first things that I tell them, and I intentionally tell them this is, hey, we're glad that you're here visiting Riverside, but honestly, we want you to be in a church that teaches the word, that loves Jesus, and that will help you draw closer to Jesus. And so if that's not Riverside, if you find that at another church, we want you to be a part of that church. If that's Riverside and we want you to be a part of our church, that's awesome. But we're not in the business of fighting with other churches. There are a lot of churches in this area and those churches that are, have good shepherds that are pointing to Jesus, we wanna partner with them. It is not about Riverside. It is not about making sure that we have the most people here. And if it ever does become that, that's a dangerous thing. There is one flock, one good shepherd, and we are just under shepherds as a part of that. In fact, I had someone who came last week to the service. I had talked to them. He was looking around for a different church and, and he came and he visited and he was really nice and cordial. I told him the same thing and he called me later on this week and said, hey, really appreciated coming to this church, but I'm gonna go to a different church. And honestly, there's a part that feels, you know, maybe I did something wrong or maybe I said something wrong. But if he goes and finds another church that is teaching God's word, that is pointed to Jesus, shouldn't I be happy? That's what the church is about, and that's what good shepherds are about. So I think those are good three ways of, of, of recognizing the beauty um, of the good shepherd and recognizing when there is a, a good under-shepherd. But I, I wanna be mindful that some of y'all probably have been hurt by bad shepherds. I, I'm not unaware of that I've probably hurt some of y'all. Um, and so what do you do, why in the world would you trust a shepherd if you've, been, if you've been hurt in the past? Maybe you've been hurt not just by shepherds, but you've been hurt by the church. I have a lot of friends who've been really hurt by the church and don't wanna come back to the church because of pastors, because of people within the church that have hurt them. And they want nothing to do with Jesus because of the way that bad shepherds have hurt them. And what I wanna close with is just an encouragement of why you should trust Jesus as a good shepherd even if bad shepherds have hurt you in the past. And the reason I think is this, it's because what Jesus has said over and over and over again in this passage is this, that he lays down his life for the sheep. So I talked about the image of the good shepherd a lot and and it's interesting if you go back, you can see images that are very similar to that painting. So this is from the 570 BC, and this is an Assyrian sculpture of what's called Moscophorus, the calf bear. And he's got this calf around his shoulders. And later on, you can see a a Greek image. This is actually a a Roman copy of an earlier fifth century BC Greek image of what's called Creophorus, which is the ram bear. And you can see a similarity to that to a fourth century statue AD of the Good Shepherd. You have the the shepherd carrying them around its neck. And so a a lot of people, a lot of scholars will say that, well, the good shepherd is just the Christians taking this pagan image and adopting it for themselves. But here's what I want you to notice that is different about these statues. In both of these first statues, 
that animal that's being born is being carried to be sacrificed. And this one, specifically this sheep, is gonna be sacrificed to Hermes. And at every other religion, when you have somebody who's a sheep bearer or a calf bearer, they're gonna take the sheep and they're gonna sacrifice them to a different God. But the beauty of the Christian faith is this. The reason that you can trust the good shepherd to go around his neck is that Jesus isn't just the good shepherd. Jesus is also the lamb who was sacrificed. And this is where John starts out. In John chapter one, John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says that multiple times in both verse 29 and verse 36. And if there's any reason to trust Jesus, the good shepherd, it's because he's the good shepherd, but he's also the lamb who was sacrificed and slain. And so because he was sacrificed once for all, because he was willing to lay down his life, unlike these bad shepherds who use the life of the, she- of the sheep for themselves, or, or these hired hands who won't risk their life, Jesus, knowing he was going to lose his life as the shepherd, was willing to come and die for us. And that's, I think, the motivation and the reason that we should be willing to trust Jesus as the good shepherd because of the gospel, because of the good news. Because he showed how much he really cared for us as sheep, that he would die for us. And so my hope is that that gives you encouragement to keep being a part of the sheep, being a part of the flock, even if there's bad shepherds, even if there's hired hands that maybe hurt you sometimes, even if there's under shepherds that don't fully do what God has called them to. God is a good shepherd who loves you and cares for you and has died for you so that you might be part of the flock. And what he promises, what he calls for because he died is that you may have life abundantly. Not just a scarce life of survival, but a life where there is a wide open field like I picture these fields in Scotland where everything is green and lush and beautiful and you can roam around on the hills. This is the picture of what the good shepherd wants to lead you into. That's a shepherd that we can trust, that we can move towards. And our hope is that we as pastors, we point you to that shepherd. And where we fail, we confess and we repent of that. But we want to constantly point you to the good shepherd who died so that you might be part of his flock and you might have life. We want to worship him this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we um, come before you and we thank you that you are a good shepherd, that you know who we are, that you know us by name, um, and you call out to us. Um, We praise you that you are um, a God who loved us so much that you might die for us, that you are both the good shepherd but also the lamb who was slain, the lamb who died for our sin to be a sacrifice for us in the place we should have been. And so we pray that we would learn to trust you, to know you, to love you more. We pray that Riverside would be a church that points people to you, that other churches in this area and in this country and around the world would be pointing people to the good shepherd who knows us, who loves us, who wants us to have life and have it abundantly. And if we've been hurt by shepherds in the past, would you help us to to see um, how good of a shepherd you are? We pray this all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and for the glory of the Father. Amen.